Chris, good evening. Hey. Hey. So today is about culture. Yeah. But company culture. Yes. That's probably, that's probably, since we come from two different Dutch and American cultures and everyone loves to talk about American culture these days or it's downfall, company culture is what we're going to be going over. Yeah. Perfect. And so, Chris, how did this come up as a topic? Tell me what you did this morning. <laughs> I spent a really long time on uh, getting some posters up in the office. Six of them, to be precise. And they look like propaganda, but actually they are about company culture. They are propaganda. I, I always are. like to think of it in that way. And, and, I mean, it's not... I think people have a negative connotation with propaganda. I don't think it's bad. I think it is a reminder and a reflection on some of the values and methods we want to imbue as a company. And then we now see them on a daily basis. Exactly. So hanging up a bunch of posters in the office this morning actually made us talk about them for, I, I think, up to two hours on and off. Yeah. And so let's back up for a second and explain, before we walk into what these six uh, cultural values are that we have at Raft, how we even got here. And I, I think to start out, for our first year at Raft, we really didn't have a good idea of what we were doing. No. We really had um, very little in terms of a company story. We had very little in terms of how we were going to handle anything like business development or even tools, but especially what we stood for. Yeah, there was a lot of bluffing involved in getting people to actually take us on for work. And when people asked us, when we went out and talked to people to hire, people would say, okay, well, tell me about your company. Well, we do digital work. We, we right? do UX. Yeah. yeah. That's we, where it ended. Digital transformation. Ooh. But we didn't have a good story on what we stood for as a company, why we were different from the other company down the street. Because we've had several spinoffs from Frog in Amsterdam, but we didn't have a good answer on why we were different from any of the other ones. We tried to start to create some answers. Yeah. And I think after a year or a year and a half, we started putting together a short list of items that, as we talked in the office, had these beliefs about them. And this is what started to be these cultural principles. And these were things that we felt separated us or set us apart from other digital design companies, from other digital design consultancies out there. And these were also written in a way to almost make people think about who we were because we didn't want to be like everybody else. And, and I think from everyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows that we split off from Frog. When we started Raft, we also tried to reflect and say, what are the things that we want to improve? The things that we walked away with um, that we thought we could make a better environment for. And that's also where these started to come from. By the way, we are going to read these out. But for those of you who are interested, uh, you can go to the Raft Instagram account. At Raft underscore collective. And check these out. So we have beautiful photos of these uh, within the Instagram account. That you can see how, uh, how we've done these and how we've hung these up. So again, we, we started out talking about all these things, and then about a year and a half into running Raft, we wrote them down into just six short statements. And then it took us another year and a half of just sitting on them before we decided to do anything. And about two weeks ago or a week ago, uh, myself and Chris Yu yep. and a few other people said, you know what, let's print these out and hang them up. Because when we send them out an email... They don't necessarily have the traction for discussion. People see them and people get another 20 emails a day. And so they say, well, I'm going to put that off or I don't have to confront it. It doesn't really mean anything to me yet. But it were things that as some of the founders and the people who had come into the company that we tried to build into the culture 
of the company and what we wanted to create within the company, how we want people to discuss things. And so now we said, let's put them up. So once we made that decision, it was a year and a half of having them hang out in a notes file somewhere and then in emails. And then in just one week, you went and got them printed. Bessie, our amazing visual designer, put them together in some beautiful posters. And now we have hung them up across the studio in a line. And so, Chus, do you want to read out the first uh, three of these? And I'll take the next three. Okay. Our first cultural principle is we value questions over answers. We do not talk to seem smart. It's all about actually asking better questions to understand the problem, the problem that you have when you're designing, but also the problem that the client describes when they're asking you to do work with or for them. The second one is we respect clients. We do not understand their business better than they do. You really have to watch out as a design consultancy to come in with a certain sense of arrogance on telling people how to do their job and uh, what they're doing wrong. We always want to be respectful of the client and know that they've been in their business for a long time and they actually did it so well that they have money to pay somebody else to help them out. So make sure to pay respect to that. And the third one is we believe what we see. We do not see what we believe. You have to work with observation. You have to do research. You have to look for what actual things are instead of look for confirmation of what you think they are on things that you've decided beforehand. So before I get to the next three, I want to break each one of those down even further. Because the first one that you read, we value questions over answers, that got the most discussion today. Exactly. Everybody sort of started talking, well, don't people come to us? for answers, right? People don't come to us for questions. But the reason we have this in here, and I think Dave, one of the people who also works in our office space, uh, helped us articulate a bit, is while these are, or while we framed these as cultural principles, they do have a bit of our methodology in here. And the idea from this, and this ties into the next one, actually all three of these tie together. And the idea that we value questions over answers was specifically because we want to come in open-minded, and to go to the next one of respecting clients, we want to ask a lot of questions about how clients run their business, how they approach their users, right? And so these these situations were created that I would see so many designers, and this wasn't just from our previous work, this was from other agencies as well, other consultancies as well too, come in and say, well, this is how you need to do something. They would talk to the client for an hour, and then they would immediately go after and say, well, here's a method we can use. Here's something we can do. And we've seen this before, right? And part of that is to sort of shortcut and try to get results as quick as possible. But part of it is I feel designers over the past 20 years have built up this idea that somehow they have carte blanche to walk in and say, I know something better than you do. And I think with Raft, we look at What we have is a set of methods and tools to enhance a client's business. We're never going to know banking better than ING does. We're never going to know card systems better than MasterCard. We're never going to know train systems better than NS. But what we can do is use the tools and methods at our disposal to help them sort of exponentially grow how they connect to users. And that's the biggest thing with the more that we ask questions throughout the entire process, the more that we reflect, the better we can also work with them. Exactly. We, we need to help them understand their problems better because the biggest mistake you can make in innovation is to try and come up with a solution as fast as possible. 
and not really understanding your problem. That's the way to make mistakes. That's the way to invest a lot of money in a solution that might not work. So then you go, you run that right into the next one of respecting clients. So many times designers will sit there, that client is stupid. That client doesn't know what they're talking about. But Hus, as you rightfully pointed out, there's a reason clients have budgets of hundreds of thousands of euros or dollars or whatever your local currency is that they go out and hire vendors. And there are reasons that they hire vendors. But the idea, and I, you know, Hus, you and I have been building Raft for the last three, three and a half years. It is not easy to build a company. No. So if you are a company the size of, you know, a Fortune 100, Fortune 500, or even if you are a startup with 50 people, that's not easy. So do not diminish what people have done. Do not assume that you all of a sudden are better than what somebody else has accomplished, especially if you've never tried to run a company, right? Always sit there and say, what does this person need? How can I help them? How can I, you know, create value for them? Because a lot of times, I think where, where there's a discrepancy is clients will come and want to talk about design, but they may not have the vocabulary, or they may not have the toolbox, or they may not have the ability to do this. And then we see that as some sort of weakness. And then we say, we'll see they're stupid about this. They don't understand users, so they're stupid. But that's not the case. And that's one thing that we, I, I think from a discipline, from an industry point of view, we have to eradicate that idea. Yeah. We have to say that we are here in service of clients. And frankly, clients are the people who keep you and me and several other people at Raft with salaries and in business and with the ability to do what we love. Do not be disrespectful to the people who you know are, are feeding you. Don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? Exactly. That's just a poor attitude. Yeah, we're a consultancy. So we're successful if our clients are successful. We cannot consult ourselves and we're not the ones making our own products. So to, to extrapolate, moving to that last one, to the point you ask questions, you respect your clients, and then you come in to believe what we see. If you go back and listen to last week's podcast, I think it was last week's where we talk about smallholder farmers and crop protection. Yep. That was a great idea of how do you eliminate bias or how do you start to eliminate bias? And that's the idea. So many people are going to come in because if you're, you know, if you're either one of our age, you have 30 or 40 years of bias and of history and of ideas built into you. The entire idea of great design, especially if you're on the research side, is you have to let that melt away. You have to let that go and you have to be observational around what you're seeing. And I found that is such a difficult thing for designers to do, especially let's say we're in Netherlands. Chus, uh, you grew up here. I grew up in the US, both you know developed countries. It is so easy for us to go and sort of think in a way that we have based on developing countries and we can go into emerging markets and apply that same thinking, which has no bearing there. Yeah. And instead of really taking the time to try to, whether that's reading, whether that's watching, whether that's studying, we again, will go in, I've seen this so many times, and we'll start asking a few questions and then say, well, here are the methods that you need and here's how you solve things. But that doesn't really add value. At least that's what I've seen from 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 some previous projects uh, outside of Raft. And so I think that's where you really need to look at removing the biases that you have. You have to watch out for your confirmation bias. There's nothing easier than confirming what you think is already happening. You just need a single observation that goes in line with what you're thinking, and you're going to believe that that's the full truth and the only truth. 
I would recommend for everybody who, let's say, reads a book on something that they really enjoy, read a book on the opposing viewpoint. So for me, I tend to be democratic-leaning, not as socialist as many other people, sort of around Amsterdam at least, but I will read right-winged or Republican books from the U.S. because I want to ensure that I have a decent perspective. And I think anybody listening to this podcast should do that because otherwise you're going to just, as you said, reinforce what you think. Yeah. The next three. So we've covered valuing questions over answers, respecting clients, believing what we see. Now, number four, we solve for the future. And the subtext here, we are not distracted by the past or the present. Number five, we partner for the long term. We do not do quick fixes. And the final, number six, we shepherd work within an organization. We do not romanticize ideas. Let's break these down, Chus. Let's do it. We're solving for the future. The, this, is, this is the great uh, Gretzky quote. Do you know this one? Nope, do it. Okay, so I, I can, I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but Wayne Gretzky, very famous hockey player in the 90s, when someone asked him how he's, uh, how he's so great at uh, playing hockey, he said, well, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. Yeah. And I always think that's the greatest analogy to apply in business as well. So a lot of times designers or design teams will say, what's happening now? What are the trends now? What's going on? What has happened, right? This is what research tells you, right? What are the things that has happened up until now? And then you base a solution on that. But a lot of companies, when you hand them something, won't be able to get it out the door for another one or two years. So I think it's so important to when you do research or when you look at what's going on now, start to look at the emerging trends, start to look at emerging behaviors, and you have to sort of place bets on where the puck is going to be to help a client think of how to position their product in that one, two, three years. Exactly. And it's it's easy to have some ideas that might seem cool right now, but that doesn't mean that there's not already a company working on that right now, releasing it in two weeks. And that as something we've been talking about before, where your, your target group has the law of increasing expectations, according to the Kano model. We've talked about that. There's nothing worse than being behind your competition. And it's super easy if you look too much at the present to not compete, but just build things slightly later than your competition is. Well, and how many times do we find clients trying to catch up, right? It's not even, it, it, so many people will say, well, this is what somebody has now. So we need to get to that point, but they don't necessarily think of what that person's going to have in a year from now yeah. when they can finally catch up. So that's another just situation there on, on how you're building products for the future. And I think you need to see this as much as in what you're building as in how you're building it. You also need to make sure that your company is working with the latest ways of innovating. You've seen the whole wave of, of uh, Scrum and Agile go over the world. And now there is a bit of a backlash uh, and companies trying to do it differently. But make sure that your organization is also running in a way that is modern. Because the more you do things in the old ways, the more you're going to develop product that are for the old ways. Breaking down number five, partnering for the long term. This, this came specifically out of the idea that so many times uh, clients will come to us and we'll start out with a two-week, four-week, eight-week program. We always want to think, how do we add value for them that is going to increase over time? And how do we work with somebody over the course of a, a number of months or hopefully a number of years? And we've been very lucky that the majority of our clients, we've actually maintained for at least a year, if not longer. So people like iAmsterdam, uh, people like ING, 
uh, who, who else do we have here? Phillips was two and a half years. Elsevier was, was over a year, I believe, as well. Yeah. So we've had you know, several clients that we've been lucky to work with. NS, of course, has, yeah. been, has been a year and a half, if not, uh, if not two years. So we've been very lucky to have a lot of these clients that we've partnered on the long term with. And I think this also goes into a bit around how we mentally, well, I think it is how we mentally think about programs, but then how we financially think about programs. Because there will be some times where we'll have a very short six-week program. And this goes into how we run the business a little bit. But we're not afraid to say, look, even if it's a short program, let's stock up with more people. If we have people on the bench, let's put them on the program to see what we can add value, right? And yes, from a financial point of view, that eats away at our margins. But what I have found is that has always returned in spades for us. Because if we can provide more value than people you know, believe that they're paying for, they're always gonna come back to you, right? Especially comparatively to anybody else. So we think about when we run the business, when we think about margin and utilization, we do look at those uh, situations, but we tend to think about the value that we are creating in order to have long-term relationships that see us ship products out the door, right? And, so, and, and that's actually another critical thing is we want to make sure that we can see things come to life, not just provide a sort of like blue sky concept or an idea, which is about to come back in a moment with number six, but we actually want to produce work with that company. We, we live in a world where digital products actually change day by day. Innovation and development and design is never done. A product improves every day. Google Maps today doesn't look like what it looked like last week, and this keeps on going. So you can never partner for the short term and say you've really helped a client. And lastly, this is my favorite one. This is the one that I think rails against what so many designers love to hold dear. And this came, the original phrasing for this is we do not embrace ideas, right? And then we've, we've changed that to, to frame it in a positive sense of what we do do, right? So we do shepherd work within an organization is what this is developed into. But the entire idea behind this is within my career, I've seen so many designers relish ideas. They I had this great idea. I had this wonderful idea. Or you see somebody produce a product. Well, I had that idea five years ago, right? Let me make this very damn clear. Your idea, anybody's idea is worth nothing. I, I'm going to repeat that because I believe it so much. And I know everybody doesn't agree with this and that is absolutely okay. But my ideas, your ideas, anybody's idea, ideas are fundamentally worth zero unless you can make it into something. Because guess what? Everybody, not everybody, but so many people had Snapchat's ideas before Snapchat came out. Just nobody produced it, right? So we do not sit around and say, well, we have the best ideas, right? Because the people we work with, our clients have wonderful ideas. People that we do research with, they have wonderful ideas. The person that you stop on the street and you ask them what they're thinking, they have awesome ideas too. What we think is worthwhile is when we work with clients and this is why you need to respect them. This is why you need to partner for the long term. And this is why you need to look at the future is because our ability to provide value is only as strong as our ability to bring an idea through an organization and have it see the light of day and provide value to that client. If we cannot do that, I have to question the value that we have provided for them. It's, it's super easy to describe an idea for a feature in an app or for an app itself and get everybody excited. We've done that for clients, but we're, for instance, with one client, we're now almost two years in and it's still not in the hands of people because it's easy to describe something like a sci-fi novel that's super amazing and, and everything works automatically. 
but to get that actually described on paper and then built is where the value lies. And that takes multiple years. You need to get it past multiple levels within the company. Then you need to describe it for multiple groups of people that you need their help because a designer actually, unless you're a design unicorn, you don't build your own things. You need large teams and you need big buy-in from the whole organization. So many designers will love this idea of blue sky, right? Because that's where they can come up with all their ideas. They, they, they don't want constraints. I say, we, you know, we go for the opposite. Constraints are a positive thing. Constraints make us figure out how we're going to make something real. And again, that comes back to, uh, you know, if, if clients come to us and are just, you know, want blue sky thinking, we're more than happy to provide that. But I don't think that's where our real value comes in. It's give us that process, right? We talked about this with... Um, uh, a few episodes, I think it was episode 68, where we talked about accelerators and incubators. And we said, you know, give people process because innovation is not just blue sky thinking, right? Innovation needs process and discipline. And that's the same thing here with designers, with anybody that just saying, hey, go, go greenfield, blue sky, do whatever you want, right? That's wonderful for a brainstorm. But when you need to produce something, put guardrails in place and figure out how to create boundaries, and how to make something real. So to come back, to quickly summarize all of these again. First, we value questions over answers. Second, we respect our clients. Third, we believe what we see. Fourth, we solve for the future. Number five, we partner for the long term. And finally, number six, we shepherd work with an organization. And what I what I said a little bit earlier and what Dave had me recognize today, which I think is quite valuable, is this is a combination of method and culture, right? This does tell you a little bit about how we act, not just about sort of how we, how we feel or how we communicate, but it does tell you a little bit about how, the methods that we use when we are, yeah. how we partner, how we, how we look forward. And I think that's actually quite a beautiful way of framing culture because it isn't just this amorphous thing, but it grounds it in a way that you can start to understand when I come to this company, what do I expect? What are the things that are going to align with my values or not. And I think, by the way, I, I said this when we posted on Instagram, Adriana and Timon were talking to me and, and looking for a... A way of framing the post. Yeah. And I, I said something about like, we want to be polarizing. Yeah. And the response was, well, you know, polarizing can be a negative word. In this case, I, I know it can be. I don't think it is. I hope it's not for people. I think it is worthwhile to stand for something that other companies don't stand for. And let me, let me tell you, man, when I see... Designers sit around and they have this, you know, we don't take crap from the clients and we are uncompromising in what we do and we are curious. And to me, that's crap, right? Because let me tell you something, everybody compromises. If you want to make a product and get it out the door, you have to compromise. That idea of not compromising to me feeds that idea of arrogance, right? So if you're working in a company, and this is, this is so many companies and so many designers have described their way as this, right? Being curious. Of course you're curious. Everybody's like, so many people are curious, right? So tell me more about what you stand for. Don't be afraid to take a stand and have that discussion because as it was framed today, and what I think is really nice way of putting it is, is that sort of Amazon cultural aspect of have a strong opinion loosely held. So I will be, you know, very direct in the way that I describe so many things, but I also want to listen to the discussion and see if I need to change the way that I'm thinking in order to make a better, whatever it is, team, 
product, organization, client relationship, uh, end goal. Exactly. Culture adapts. Traditions don't, but culture adapts. And that's what you need to keep in mind. We will hold these principles and this culture strong until we figure out that other things are better or that we need to adapt our opinions. So we've ran a little bit long. We usually try to go 20 minutes. We're a little bit over. So Chus, last words. If you like these principles, if you like this culture, feel free to talk to us. <laughs> Reach out. Okay, ma'am. Talk to you next week. Bye. Later. Bye.